author, columnist, and president of the Aristotle Foundation, Mark Milkey, is joining me today. He has delved into the contentious issues plaguing the nation today in his newest book, The 1867 Project. From assault on historical figures to the pervasive influence of cancel culture and allegations of genocide, Canada finds itself under constant attack. Mark gives me the background and context for this unique book. You'll love how he challenges the skeptics and their corrosive criticisms in a respectful way and offers a hopeful path forward. Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. Well, Mark, it's so great to have you on Return to Reason. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, David. I appreciate it. Well, we've got uh, a lot to talk about. I want to just highlight your book that uh, you guys have been working on. It's going to be coming out very shortly, and I think it's quite fitting uh, us approaching Canada Day as your book is titled 1867 as to why Canada should be cherished and not canceled. Tell me, why did you first off write this book? Where did this come from? Sure. Well, the 1867 project, available on Amazon, by the way, to put that promo in there, yep. um, really is about um, trying to push back against cancel culture, against this notion we shouldn't celebrate Canada, um, that somehow um, Canadian history had to be perfect if we can at all appreciate Canada at all. Um, so it's really an attempt to say, uh, listen, <laughs> we got here uh, in the 21st century, care of past generations. I mean, starting 20,000 years ago with indigenous folk, people we now call indigenous that crossed mm -hmm. the Bering Plains or their ancestors did, and everyone else since that built Canada. And try to imagine being a fur trader 500 years ago. Uh, you helped carve out the country. Indigenous folk helped carve out the country. Someone who came here two years ago from Hong Kong has helped carve out modern-day Canada and contributed to it. So we wanted to say it's a mistake to look at Canada and only see warts, uh, only see the bad part of history, as if mm. as if anybody in history was perfect. So it's a bit of a corrective to the cancel culture uh, that's rampant out there, at least among the chattering classes. I don't think most Canadians want to cancel Canada, but obviously that seems to be a current theme among um, some talking heads across the country. What are some of the issues that you address specifically in this book that have seemed to contribute to this idea of not being proud of our nation or wanting to cancel events such as the Canada Day festivities that over the last number of years, you've seen lots of different cities and towns contemplating mm -hmm. or going through with canceling the celebrations. Even this year in Calgary, I'm not sure if people have been following, but Calgary, your hometown, my hometown here has been back and forth, whether they're going to celebrate or not. So what are some of the issues that you are contributing in this book? Sure. Well, there are 19 authors in addition to myself. We each took a chapter in the book. Uh, one example is informed history on John A. Macdonald. John A. Macdonald, his statues have been removed in Victoria, torn down. Yeah in other parts of the country. He's been vilified. So the author of that chapter in the 1867 project, uh, Greg Piasetsky, a Toronto intellectual property uh, property rights lawyer, uh, Greg wrote a chapter on Johnny McDonald saying, listen, you have to understand something about Johnny McDonald. He is not the villain that he's made out to be on indigenous issues, for example. Um, here is a fellow who went to bat for um, you know, indigenous folk across the country in his era. Hmm. It's John A. McDonald that set up what we now know as the RCMP, originally the Northwest Mounted Police. Why did he do so? Well, he did so because it was the policy of the British Empire and then early Canadian leaders like John A. McDonald that if you're going to settle in Western Canada, 
you need to have the rule of law. They didn't want what was called the, the Indian Wars of the United States to be replicated north of the border. So yeah. Greg Piasatsky in this chapter in the 1867 project goes into great detail to say, um, McDonald actually, this is going to be controversial for some, saved more indigenous lives than any other Canadian prime minister because he was careful and methodical to try and respect indigenous um, you know, the first people who settle in this country, the people we now call indigenous, and try and protect them from settlers coming out west. He didn't want to replicate the American mistakes, the American wars. And he was largely successful. The Northwest Mounted Police were there not just to protect settlers from, um, you know, Indians. They were there to protect the indigenous settlers from yeah. the later settlers. So, and by and large, they succeeded. In fact, you have examples, and Greg gives this in the 1867 project in his chapter. He gives examples, of course, of some native leaders um, and, and peoples that crossed the border from the United States precisely to seek protection um, of the Canadian state. And that was John A. McDonald's doing. So that's wow. one example of a claim that will, will be controversial to some. But yeah. as Greg, who is himself part Indigenous and Métis, says, look, this chapter is necessary because we need to have actual history discussed in this country, not vilification accounts um, that expect historical figures to be perfect. And McDonald had his, had his, had his flaws, including on some Indigenous policy. Um, but he's not the villain that um, the talking heads, some of the talking heads out there make him out to be. What do you hope to achieve with this book? Like, if if you're to look back in 20 years and see what what did this book accomplish, what what would you ideally like to see? Well, that people understand that we got here in 2023 on the backs, on the sacrifices of everyone who built Canada, as I mentioned a moment ago, from the first settlers 20,000 years ago who came across the Bering Straits or the Bering Plains as they were then. Yeah to someone who showed up 500 years ago, 200 years ago, and two years ago, or yesterday, you know, a refugee from Ukraine. But Canada, uh, people sometimes, I think the problem these days is people don't understand how ideas matter to history and how we built on the ideas of the past, um, or that history is, is nuanced. Let me give you a clear example. Yeah. In 1858, uh, several dozen Black Californians showed up in Victoria, British Columbia in 1858. Why did they come? They were, they were, uh, they were escaping the prejudice of uh, California, a very prejudiced state in the 1850s. Mm. And the black Californians came to Victoria and did what people who moved to Victoria always do. They write back to the relatives and brag about Victoria, uh, <laughs> and not just because of the flowers. They do this because um, they find tolerance in uh, Victoria of their day from the British governor, James Douglas, from the Anglican mm. archbishop. Now, they did encounter some prejudice. Unfortunately, it was from some indigenous First Nations up island. Um, so history is more complicated than the simple yeah. um, my people good, your people bad uh, narrative that we hear today. Um, one of the things, I don't discuss it in this book, but I did it in my previous book in The Victim Cult, is I quoted Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who said, the dividing line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And the goal of this book is to remind people that actually everyone has their flaws and virtues, including all of our ancestors. And we better think concretely about how to unite around good ideas, not divide based on identities past or present. Well, it really seems that in our day, with the rise of cancel culture, there also seems to be this this elevate this this rising of not knowing all the facts or even caring to know the other side of the story or the full picture. It's almost a convenience culture. You get a snippet mm -hmm. of a headline of a, maybe a biased journalist or 
or a news reporter on something and people take that and it's inflamed and they don't get a chance to see the whole story. How much has that influenced this disparity in terms of whether people can be proud of our nation or not? The fact that people don't necessarily seek out the entire truth. Well, or they don't put it in context. So that's a problem. I think uh, part, part of what's driving this actually is a modern utopian movement. And mm. what I mean by this, and I described this in the introduction, uh, in my introduction to the 1867 project before we we go on to the other, the other authors in the book, um, I described the problem with modern utopianism. Yeah. The way to think about it is this. In the 20th century, utopians um, like Marxists look to the future and tried to create a perfect future. They were wrong, dead wrong on economics and much else. French mm -hmm. revolutionaries in 1789 looking to create a perfect France, and they bring down uh, the ancient regime in an attempt to kind of start from year zero. Utopians are always a problem, but at least the French revolutionaries and the Marxist revolutionaries could argue that perhaps their project could succeed in the future. We have people who look to the past now, to 1867, to John A. Macdonald, to other founders, um, to an imperfect Canadian history. And weirdly, they expect history to have been perfect, even though history is full of imperfect human beings like us today. And so I think the problem with cancel culture today is that it's immodest. People actually mm. think that um, the past should have been perfect, even though no one is perfect today. And, and they're immodest in this sense as well. I think it's unquestionable that 100 years from now, Canadians will look back at you and I and others and go, what were you thinking on issue X or Y, right? Because nobody's omniscient. We're not God. You have 80 years on this planet, sometimes at most, or 100 years. To think that you can know everything by the time you're 23 or 83 is uh, hubris. And yeah. so we make mistakes today that future generations will, will look at and go, what could you possibly be thinking? And the only excuse is, well, we did our best. And in, the terms, in terms of Canada and, and thinking about it contextually in history, a lot of the ideas that have led to a free, flourishing country today or allowed people from all over the world to flourish now in Canada, it doesn't matter whether you're from South Korea, South Africa, or Singapore, yep. are the ideas of some of the early founders, the British classical liberals that valued the individual, that said the individual is more important than the tribe. Yep. And that's another message from this book, The 1867 Project. You have to be very careful not to get into the swamp of identity politics as is happening and looking yep. at people based on skin color, ethnicity. So, but cancel culture has really come from, I think, this utopian perspective that history should have been perfect. I don't know why people would think that. Well, you, you kind of got into a little bit of my next question. I was going to ask about the rise of identity politics and critical theory and how that really has affected this, uh, this criticism and really, well, criticism on Canadians' history. Maybe do you mind touching on a bit more about the rise of critical theory and how that has affected how people view Canada? Sure. So Bruce Party, Professor Bruce Party from Queen's University, law professor at Queen's in Toronto, writes the very first chapter in the 1867 project talking about, um, you know, four theories of the apocalypse. Yeah. And one of them is critical theory. He starts with critical theory. Uh, I'm no expert on it, but Party is. And in the 1867 project, Professor Party talks about critical theory as an offshoot of Marxism, really. So again, in the 20th century and before Marxism, thought that everything about the economy was derived from power, that there was no independent reality. And you could recreate human beings and their societies based on kind of a top-down approach to you know, supply and demand and prices and the rest of it. It was really anti-reality theory. It didn't take into account how human beings behaved. So Marxism was dead wrong. Yeah. Um, 
nonetheless, what happened was when Marxism failed, uh, party and others look at critical theory. Critical theory is a kind of a revamped, rewarmed, rewrite, recycled Marxism, where uh, the notion is that everything in life and in society is really just a power game, and that you can create your own reality as long as you seek power. Um, and so uh, there's no objective reality out there. And so Professor Party goes into this and says, um, the critical theorists actually think there is no objective reality that you can measure success by, or that the the project from the Enlightenment empiricism, where you know we we weigh things, for example, or the scientific method says this is how you get to you know a better world, is yeah. nonsense. And you can kind of declare a better world just by saying we want a better world, right? Which is kind of where woke culture comes from, sure. or social justice advocates these days. They just think if you imagine a better world yeah. and use words, you can create it out of your mind, yeah. and that the only the only uh, block to this is those awful people who are capitalists or white males or or what have you. And, and Party's chapter in the 1867 project takes this apart and says, uh, no, actually, uh, this isn't realistic. And in fact, it's quite dangerous because what it does is it undermines the empirical project, which got us away from, you know, just your opinion and my opinion. Um, now we can't even agree on an objective set of facts or a way to measure things. So that's dangerous because it undermines really the empirical project that's been, you know, uh, yeah. here with us since the Enlightenment and has led to great progress in science, uh, in the economy and elsewhere. Um, so long answer to short question, but that's the problem with critical theory. Uh, yeah. So we go into that in the book. It, it deconstructs and, and sort of abolishes and corrodes the foundations of Western liberal democracies. As we move here into Canada Day, next couple of days, I'm a proud Canadian. I do love our country. I, I do believe, just as you're saying, is that human history has its shares of wins and its shares of faults. But I think as we can continue learning from our past and, and moving forward and, and growing, but also being proud of what we built and all the people that have contributed, I think in Canada, we have a lot to be proud of and what the country offers. And I want to ask a question about your book. Does your book offer a path forward? in terms of about Canadians looking at Canada and where we can go from here? Well, we do. Uh, myself and the other 19 authors uh, certainly do. I mean, the first part of the book kind of deals with current issues. Uh -huh. In the 1867 project, we, we, you know, we delve into identity politics. We, we delve into cancel culture and the problems with that. And the second part of the 1867 project is kind of a corrective on history. So the chapters on John A. Macdonald, on say the British colonial empire, were they all bad? No, actually, it was a British empire that fought slavery. It was a turnaround in British society. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, we were one of the first countries to abolish slavery under one of the first governors to, to make it illegal, practically illegal. And it was pretty much dead by 1820 before the British empire even outlawed it across the empire yeah. in 1833. So the second part of the book is a corrective to history. And the third part of the book looks forward what what kind of Canada do we want? And that's where uh, myself and other authors get into, all right, um, can we rediscover a shared humanity? Whereas Canadians, we look at each other as individuals. We look at each other and we, we value each other for our character and our merit. The old Martin Luther King vision, which Martin Luther King had for his country, that he wanted a country where people look at each other based on uh, the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Yeah. So how do you rediscover this? Well, we have some ideas at the end of the book, but also in terms of how you approach, it is, it's always going to be connected to how we view history. So let me give you kind of an analogy. Yeah. Um, the problem today with cancel culture and the inability to look forward is that it continually looks at the past. It also says, look, we've discovered a fault in the past. Big surprise. You know, there's yeah. a fault in each one of us today. What it's what what this does 
is it's like an oak tree. How does an oak tree become big and healthy from its initial you know, seedling? Well, when it grows and you see a branch that's diseased on an oak tree, you prune the branch. You don't take down the entire tree because of one bad branch. And it's the same thing with our historical faults in Canada. Canada has been literally a project since 1867, even before. Yeah. And, can, and we've continually pruned Canada to make a better oak tree. Yeah. But today you have people that don't want to prune the tree. They want to kill it. Yeah. Um, or they don't want the water and sunshine, the nutrients and the healthy things that help the tree grow. They say, no, take it all down. Or we don't want freedom of expression, which is like sunshine that helps the tree to grow. And so Canada really is a project. It's like an oak tree. It needs the nutrients of free expression and sunshine and the water to help it grow. It even needs yeah. wind. Think about today, people today, when you encounter people today who don't like arguing, who don't like contrarianism, who don't like free inquiry, and they say, oh, I've already made my mind up, and your, your view can't possibly be right. That's like opposing wind. You know, a tree needs wind. It needs resistance to grow and get it, make sure its, its roots are secure. Yeah. So that's what an oak tree is like. Canada is an oak tree. And the proper way to view Canada and into the future is like, what is going to help us grow? What are the ideas that are going to help? What are the nutrients that it's going to help the tree that is Canada grow? It may seem simplistic, but that's exactly what a country yeah. is. And we need to we need to unite around laudable ideas, precisely because there's what two hundred different identities in Canada. When you think about all the nationalities, ethnicities, yeah. um, you know where people have come from over the over the centuries and even the millennia. So the last part of the 1867 project is a positive look forward with a reminder that this is a great country. When you, when you consider us compared to most countries in history and most countries now, the fact that you're mostly free to speak your mind, you know, the cancel culture types aside for a moment, that you, you can mostly succeed, um, that we don't have a corrupt police force, that we don't have corrupt governments compared to most, you know, across the world. Those are things to be proud of. So yes, the last Absolutely. part of the 1867 project is about rediscovering um, the uh, the Canada that we should cherish. And frankly, let's remember something. Let's remember how many people have died, how much blood and treasure has been spent yeah. trying to make Canada a wonderful place. Indigenous yeah. soldiers in World War I, who even though they didn't have the vote wrongly, yeah. 3,000 of them fought and died for Canada. And World War II, fighting against Adolf Hitler. Yeah. And... Um, all that happened in the 20th century to strengthen Canada and make it a more free, flourishing nation. These are all positive things, which we'd, we should celebrate on July 1st. Well, and let's be honest, we have people that are continually flocking to come to Canada, to come live and build their lives and give opportunities. Um, a lot of the communities I'm in, I'm meeting people almost on a weekly basis who have just arrived or just came to Canada because they want an opportunity for their family to grow. They love the fact that we have a banking system that they can trust. They love the fact that they can send their kids to great schools and education. We live in a great country and that's taken a lot of time to build. And I loved your example of, of the oak tree. That paints a really clear picture because there is a, a growing movement, as you've talked about earlier, and maybe it stems out of victimhood and cancel culture and, and also the fact that we've got critical theory that's been on the rise for well, a while now. But this deconstructionist movement about if something is not going well, let's just destroy the whole thing, deconstruct it right down to nothing. But yet more times than not, there's not a plan in place about how to rebuild or even what to rebuild. It's just well, and you can't you can't rebuild an oak tree overnight, of course. It takes a hundred years for a decent tree to or fifty years. And so if you poison the roots, you say, Well, I see a diseased limb and I'm gonna take down the tree, I'm gonna yep. chop it down, or I'm gonna poison the roots, which is literally what's happening with some of the critical theorists and others and and the rest, 
Yeah. Um, you can't replace it. Uh, all yeah. you have is a barren landscape. Um, and you've taken down a thing of beauty that took 100 years to create. And it's actually quite arrogant, right? I mean, really everyone is. from, again, the first indigenous settlers to French fur traders to British colonialists to yeah. those who signed treaties in, in 1763 in good faith on both sides with indigenous you know, folk in Canada and vice versa. Everyone has created Canada and the success story that it is. Everyone has created this oak tree. And we should be incredibly grateful on July 1st. One of the, if you go to aerosolafoundation.org, yeah. one of the videos you'll see is from a friend of mine, Chuma, who came from Nigeria 20 years ago. Chuma talks about why he came here. He loves his home country of Nigeria, but there's such corruption. His parents said, you need to go to Canada so you can succeed as an entrepreneur. And he has succeeded here as an entrepreneur. Yeah. So Chuma tells a story on our website at aerosolafoundation.org about why he supports the Aristotle yeah. Foundation, because we're trying to remind Canadians that this has been a successful country and we want to keep it successful for everyone, make it free and flourishing for everyone. And Chuma understands, like you mentioned, as a recent immigrant or a 20-year-old immigrant now, why Canada matters, because it's been a beacon uh, for him and others. Maybe tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing with the Aristotle Foundation now that you mentioned that. I'd love to hear a bit about that. Sure. The Aristotle Foundation came out of really kind of a, an observation I had years ago when I was working at different think tanks, thinking uh, there's some other issues that we need to cover in Canada that existing think tanks weren't um, yeah. beyond just the economy or, say, the environments and energy or government budgets, all important, all that I've done work that I'm proud of with other organizations. Yeah. But when Jordan Peterson arose about six years ago, maybe this is the best way to describe it. I thought this is exactly it. There's some core things that are threatened in Canada, free expression, um, and that uh, there's some issues that aren't being addressed. Um, so when Peterson arose at, at the University of Toronto, really, yeah. and he defended free expression against forced expression, when he did a famous United T Kingdom television interview, right. where he was attacked uh, for his views on women and men, saying they're different. And he said, listen, uh, he responded with empiricism. I thought, this is great. Uh, he's defending free expression. Plus, he responds with empiricism that, yeah, men and women are different innately. And that's why, for example, you see different outcomes. It's not due to you know oppression these days of women. It's due to different choices men and women make on average. Yeah. And there's always exceptions to the rule. So I thought, this is great, but we need a think tank that looks at some of these issues of cancel culture, free expression, uh, some of the urban issues, which we'll get into as well, the decline of our cities, right? Um, mm. That's something we'll do with the Aristotle Foundation. But we want to advance reason, democracy, and civilization. Is it reasonable to call a Canadian's institution racist? I would argue not. We'll go into some of those issues at the foundation. Democracy. How come the Swiss can vote down a carbon tax? Americans can vote for marijuana or, or yank you know, school board trustees in San Francisco when they're trying to rename schools after Abraham Lincoln. Democratic means. Are there some of these means that we can apply to Canada to reform us? And civilizational issues. I think it's an absolute tragedy. We have people living on the streets in their own excrement, hooked on drugs, there are remedies to this problem from, say, some European countries like Portugal and Spain we should look at. So the decline of our cities in that area anyway yeah. is kind of a civil society, civilizational issue. So at the Aristotle Foundation, um, you know, we, we want to approach some of these issues, um, thinking through them with history and data and empiricism, but really saying, you know, like the ancient Greeks did, uh, you know, what's the good life? Because yeah. there's there's a lot to that, but we want to help make Canada a better, freer, flourishing country, using reason, uh, democratic reform, and really uh, thinking about what our civilization uh, as Canadians should should look like.
Well, that sounds fantastic. I'm looking forward to seeing some of your work on that as the Aristotle Foundation keeps to continue to press forward. Tell us a little bit about your, so you, you, your book that you did before called The Victim Cult. Maybe just tell us a bit about that as well. The spur of the victim cult came between comparing, say, the successful tactics and successful yeah. mindset of West Bank First Nations leaders and others across the country, with some First Nations leaders who were chronically in victim mode because of what happened in the past, real or imagined, and it's a combination of both sometimes. And so the victim cult started with that observation, like, all right, we, we hear, hear a lot of victim talk these days from, in some cases, some First Nations leaders, or in 2016 and since, Donald Trump, to use an American example, uh, a guy who was a Manhattan developer and put his face up on buildings or his name up in buildings and put his face all over TV, and yet he claims he's a victim, made millions yeah. of dollars, became president, and yet he's a victim, Yeah. Um, to use very two very different examples. So I conceived of this book as, hold it. Um, is this a healthy development? And the victim cult, um, which was released in 2019, um, and a, an American edition two years later, it talks about uh, the danger of victim thinking. Uh, and to give you some clear examples, um, um, when one set of when one you know people start to think of themselves only as victims, look at at others as oppressors, sometimes that can become very dangerous. Yeah. Um, Germans did this in the 19th century. Um, because they were victims of the French in wars, but they began to look at themselves as victims. And they got into this victim mentality um, where everybody else was an enemy. Jews, you know, people know about that, uh, but yeah. also English liberals in the 19th century. Um, mm -hmm. Everyone was kind of an enemy or an oppressor of Germany, and they had to kind of rediscover their identity. Yeah. Um, it was a very narrow tribal identity that Germans engaged in. And it led to a destructive end. Um, it led to 1933 and Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, who again thought of themselves as victims because of World War I. For sure. This narrative is very dangerous. So the victim cult is about um, saying, listen, be very careful of victim narratives. It's not that sometimes it's not true. Yeah. If you're an East Asian, uh, if your origin is, is East Asia, say as a Canadian or an American, you know, maybe you came, your ancestors came from Japan or China or Korea. You were victimized by white Americans, white Canadians early on in the 19th century and probably up to the 1950s, really. Yeah. But East Asians are a good example, those of East Asian origin, of those who refuse to um, think of themselves as victims, but push back in the court system, push back in politics, got their children in education. And one of the wonderful things I discovered in research for the victim cult, and I put in the end of the book, is... Um, I, I noticed uh, when looking at statistics from the 1920s from American states and American data that if you were, um, uh, you know, if your origin was, say, Japanese or Chinese ethnicity uh, or origin, uh, those countries, Japan or China originally, but you were an American, um, your kids started to graduate from high school and college at rates much higher than white Americans by the 1920s, even though this was the most discriminatory period in American history and the same with Canada. Yeah. And, and eventually Asian Canadians and Asian Americans succeeded because of their focus on education and entrepreneurship, among other things. They refused to allow the actual discrimination that was occurring, the prejudice that was occurring to keep them down. And they found whatever avenue they could to succeed. Um, and Canada was certainly imperfect in the 1920s, as was the uh, as was the American state. But nonetheless, um, they refused to think of themselves as victims and eventually triumphed. And now it's a cliche that, you know, if you're of if your family has, you know, Asian origins uh, initially, you're at the top of the income heap. Right. You've got more yeah. assets than other Canadians. Uh, and this is a good thing, but it shows the power of refusing to be a victim. Um, and that's that's the um, that's the positive part of the victim cult book.
Well, I appreciate you putting words like that pen to paper in a book. People need to read that one as well as I know this book that's coming out right away, 1867, Why Canada Should Be Cherished and Not Cancelled. If you're watching this program, go take a look. Get this book in your hands. It'll give you a lot of reasons of why you can be proud to be Canadian. Mark, go ahead and let us know how people can follow you and how can they access this book. Sure. Uh, if you look up the 1867project.ca, it'll take you to the Aristotle Foundation uh, organization website. Uh, if you go to amazon.ca, you can just type in the 1867 project and you'll get this book uh, from myself and uh, 19 other authors. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mark. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on Return to Reason. You're welcome. Thank you, David. Anytime. You are an essential part of this series. Support truth, knowledge, and wisdom by sharing this show with a friend. Visit returntoreason.tv. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter by clicking Become an Insider. Get the latest articles, episodes, and exclusive content. It's Return to Reason.